How is everybody? Good. It's pretty bad when the nine o'clock was a lot more energetic than you guys, but anyways, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying. So, hey, uh, fun story to tell you guys. I say fun. It's, um, it just, it's, it's just a little part of my life, but uh, so Friday, my wife and I, we went and saw The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Did anyone else go see that in Cannon County? Yeah, it, it, absolutely amazing. We had five people from our church who were in the main cast, including uh, Quasimodo, who was Matthew Henry, who serves an eon here. And uh, I always knew Matthew was, was extremely talented, and his whole family is very, very talented. His brother's in it, his parents were in it. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. Uh, but I'm getting old and soft, and uh, we're sitting pretty close to the front, and my wife is to my left, and then one of my wife's best friends, Carla, who's a clinical counselor, which that'll be relevant here in a second, is sitting to her left. And so the first time Matthew sings a solo, he climbs up on this thing and he's like belting out this note and I just lose it. Like I'm crying. And not just like a couple of tears, like I'm like, my chest is like, I'm like <laughs> I mean, I'm like bad. And Alicia's laughing at me. She's biting her finger like this and, and laughing at me. And then we go on throughout the play and there's a couple like really emotional parts. And if you've ever, if you've ever read The Hunchback of Notre Dame or, or, or been, to, been to the play, the end is just awful, right? And so at the very end, there's this monologue that Matthew gives. And I mean, I'm just like, it's just coming. And there's all these people from our church in the room. And so I have to like clean myself up before they see that I'm, you know, such a wuss. But uh, I go to start cleaning myself up afterwards. And I'm like wiping my eyes. And I'm looking, you know, like off into the distance. So, you know, no one sees me. And, and uh, Carla leans over and pats my knee. And she goes, Corey, it's so good that you can let your feelings out like that. And I was like, <laughs> be quiet, you know, like, just leave me alone. We go out into the foyer and I go to like say hi to all the people in the cast and I, I get to the end where Matthew is and lose it again and he's like holding me at one point. <laughs> he was the one in the play, you know, and like he's holding me and he's just like, oh, and I'm like, oh, I got to get out of here. So getting old and soft. So a little, little, little part of my life there. So um, we are in the book of Acts. If you've never been to the church before, we've been working through this for several months now. We're in chapter 16. So if you don't know anything about the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, we're in chapter 16. We did the first 15 verses last week. And what we kind of talked about, and it's kind of neat. So we have seen a group of men. They're leaving from what is the Middle East, modern-day Turkey. They cross the Aegean Sea, which separates the Middle East from Europe. They cross over into North Greece, and we see that now the gospel, the message of Jesus, is being taken into a completely different continent. Now it's in Europe, right? And so they go into North Greece. The first person who becomes a Christian in Europe is a woman named Lydia. Not only that, the first church in Europe and in Greece is started in Lydia's home. She's the one that hosts this church. And we start to see kind of this, this really interesting, diverse group of people that start going to the church in Philippi, right? And if you know anything about the New Testament, New Testament, the book of Philippians is written to this church. So last week we talked about the kingdom of God is diverse. We also talked about the response of these people who had become Christians, that there is a natural response of doing good things after we're saved. We're not saved by good things, but when we're saved, we do good things, right? We talked about that. This week, I'm going to get a little spiritual on you guys, which I hope is okay in church, but uh, we're going to talk about three different points. We're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see a young woman get uh, freed or delivered from demonic possession. 
we're going to talk about the contentment that God gives versus the happiness that the world talks about as we see a couple of guys who are singing and worshiping and praying while they're in jail after just getting beaten. And we're also going to talk about the fact that we as Christians, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our past, that we are to be responsible for our walk with God, for each other, and for our community, okay? Those are the three points we're going to hit on today, all right? So you should have got a notes handout, looks like this, when you walked in, that has virtually everything I'm going to say on it. If you have a smartphone, uh, the Uversion app, click on the bottom right button, and uh, I believe it's events, and then click on our church, and all the notes pop up there and everything. If you have a Bible, the fifth book of the New Testament, we're starting in chapter 16 and verse 16, and then I will read a little bit and I'll break it down. Last thing before I pray, uh, please stop by the uh, mentor leaders booth in the back. They still need, I think our church has sponsored somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 kids so far since they've been here. They have 130 left. So it's $35 a month. Um, they pay for education, they pay for health uh, care, and they, they pay for food for these children. So please go back there, get some information from my friend David and his team, and, and prayerfully consider that, okay? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. God, I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room that you just uh, keep us open-minded this morning. Lord God, let us not only hear what your word says, but to apply it and, and to receive it, God, and, and to put it to work in our lives. Lord, if there's any non-believers in this room, I pray that they feel comfortable today. I pray that something that is spoken throughout the word today captures their attention and, and uh, Lord, leads them to kind of dig a little bit deeper into this whole Christian thing. God, we pray for every church in our community. We pray for every great nonprofit in our community. Specifically, God, we're going to pray for mentor leaders and their work in Africa, God. And Lord, we just pray that all that we do today honors you, God, and lifts you up. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Fun stuff. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed, and turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, bringing them before the chief magistrates. They said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Now, this is instantly, right, right off the bat, a pretty intriguing chunk of the Bible. So one day as Paul and his team we're heading to pray, presumably with the other Christians in this area of Philippi in North Greece. There is a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl that follows them, it said for many days, however many that means, but many days. 
and she would mock them, right? And so here's what's interesting right off the bat. When you get into Greek culture and Greek history, the Greeks thought that there was this mythological serpent, a python, that protected the temple of Apollo. Now, when someone could tell the fortune, fortune tellers, right? People who were considered fortune tellers, they considered them to be possessed by this python spirit. It's called a Pythian spirit. And so Caesars and governors and people who were rich would go to these young girls who had these Pythian spirits and they would get their fortune told, okay? So this must have been quite a scene. Not only were Pythian spirits known to be able to tell the future, they would, they would, tell, they would say that ventriloquists also had, also had a Pythian spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that like your Uncle Bob that had the puppet when you were a kid is like demon-possessed or anything, right? It's not what that means, right? Old Uncle Bob and his demon dummy, right? That's not what that means. But they thought that people that had this Pythian spirit... <laughs> Sometimes I just surprise myself at how funny I am. But anyways, <laughs> people that had this Pythian spirit they say could throw their voices like a ventriloquist. So you can imagine this ruckus this young girl was causing, right? She's following behind these guys. She's making fun of them. She's mocking them. And here's what's interesting though. She was saying something that was true. It wasn't a lie. She said, these people are teaching salvation and they are servants of the most high God. Now this is interesting. So here's the thing about demons. We're gonna, I told you we're gonna get spiritual today. Here's the thing about demons according to the Bible. Demons know the truth of Jesus. They know that Jesus Christ is the most high God. It says that in the book of James. Even the devils in hell believe that there is one God that is God, right? Our God. So they know the truth. But demonic influence aims to confuse people. Most high God was also a reference to Zeus. So the crowd wouldn't have known which most high God this demon-possessed girl was referring to. So since she was speaking truth, though, why didn't these men just own it, right? Accept it. Yeah, we are servants of the Most High God. Why didn't they just embrace it? Well, the reason why is this young girl was putting all the attention on, on her, and it was taking the attention off the gospel. So she was becoming a distraction, and she was confusing people. Now, here's what's interesting within the church world. Sometimes we have people in the church world that are such a distraction because they bring all the attention on themselves that even though they may be saying the right thing, the gospel has been kind of diminished and all the focus has been put on a man or a woman. So we need to be careful whenever we make celebrities out of worship leaders or speakers or whenever seem to just, people just seem to talk above everyone and the attention is brought on them, it diminishes the attention on the gospel we need to be very cautious about that, even within the church. So Paul got greatly annoyed. This is one of those scenes that I wish I could have seen, right? And so Paul is walking to and from prayer every day, and one day Paul just has it. He is done. And so he stops, turns around. It says he doesn't look at the girl. It says he looks at the spirit. He speaks to the spirit that is in this girl. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. And it came out. So this isn't like those cinematic exorcisms that we're familiar with, right? The girl didn't levitate, green goo didn't shoot all over the crowd, right? Her head didn't spin. It wasn't Hollywood. That's not how it works, right? We like to dramatize things and Keanu Reeves comes down with a shotgun shaped like a cross and starts shooting demons. None of that happened, right? <laughs> now, others of you have wasted your time with the movie Constantine, I see. Anyways... <laughs> 
So Paul doesn't go through all this rigmarole. He simply uses his God-given spiritual authority, looks at this demon and says, in the name of Jesus, go, and it goes. That simple. So here's the thing about this girl. The owners of the slave girl found out that this girl's been delivered of this Pythian spirit. It has been exercised out. Now, this makes them angry because that was their cash cow. That's how they made all their money, right? It was from this girl. So the owners seized Paul and Silas. They took them to the magistrates, and the charges were this. I find this interesting. They were upsetting our political correctness. They were upsetting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They were upsetting our livelihood, and they were teaching illegal religious views. Now, that's not quite true. They weren't teaching anything illegal. There's a misconception with Roman history. We often think about all the persecution of Christians, which there were, but not to the extent that we sometimes paint it to be. Roman government and Roman culture was actually very accepting of all religions. They let people worship virtually anything that people wanted to worship, Sounds a little bit like America today, but the citizens of Rome would get irrational and they would get violent when people's religious views started to impact or, or uh, affect the political correctness of culture or when their income became affected. They would become irrational. So again, in Christian culture, we really only tend to care about religion when religion inconveniences us or when it affects our pocketbooks. How dare that pastor talk about money, right? Because all of this stuff happens because God just drops it out of the sky. How dare churches ever talk about money or how dare they be politically incorrect, okay? So we see this still today. We also see something else about this story that looks a lot like American culture. There was a great degree of anti-Semitism, which means the Jews were treated a little bit more poorly than the other people. Notice there was four guys there, and only two of them get arrested. Not the two Greek people. It was the two Jewish people that got arrested. And they're about to experience Roman justice. So as the crowd's anger grew, the men get flogged, they get stripped of all their clothes, they get beaten severely by rods, they get thrown into prison, into the inner prison, the darkest part of it right there, shackled at their feet, it's looking rough, and that's where we pick up on the next part. So about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and all of his family were baptized. He brought them into the house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Okay, this is one of those nuggets of the Bible. 
I know the whole Bible is good, right? Every single word of it is valuable and good. But this is one of those nuggets that really stands out. As Paul and Silas sit in prison, look at the symbolism here. At the darkest hour of the night, in the worst position they could possibly be in, they begin to sing and they begin to pray out loud. So not only do they hear themselves worshiping and praying, everyone in the jail, because they have a captive audience, right? Everyone in the jail is listening to what's going on. Again, now look at the symbolism. The lesson is huge, that even in our darkest hours, even when we're in the deepest pit we can possibly be in, even when we don't know the outcome of what's going to happen, the true believer in Jesus Christ still worships and still prays. Even when it is its worst, we still worship and we still pray. And so as the men prayed and sang, suddenly there came such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And look at this, the doors were open, not just their doors, not just their chains, everyone's chains, everyone's doors were open. So notice it wasn't just for the two of them, that everyone around them was also positively affected by the prayer and the worship. Now, does that mean that my prayer can save your soul? No, but my prayer can create an environment where you can also experience freedom. So if you're a husband in this room and you have a family, pray, pray out loud, worship, worship out loud. It doesn't just affect you, it may open up doors so others can experience the freedom that you have. You guys with me? It's not just about us. It ripples to a lot of different people when we pray and when we worship. So the guard runs in, right? He wakes up, realizes that the doors were opened and he assumes that everyone has split. So in this culture, in Roman culture, what would happen is if you were a Roman guard and someone got away on your watch, you had to take on the punishment that was actually set aside for them. So he thought the whole prison fled. So he grabs his sword and he says, I'm as good as dead anyways. He's going to ram this sword through his own heart and take his own life. And right before he does, he hears a voice from the darkness. Paul says, stop, don't hurt yourself. We are all here. Not just he and Silas, everyone. That's a whole nother lesson. What a miracle it would be to persuade everyone in jail not to split when the doors got open, right? And so it must've been God that that whole thing even took place, but everyone was accounted for. And so here's where the story becomes just absolutely amazing and beautiful. So we can assume that he escorts them out and then he eventually brings them back because they're gonna go back to jail and be let out the next morning. But he brings them out and this jailer asks what may be the most important question in the entire Bible. What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do? to follow this God that is obviously the correct God because look what he's done for you. And so the guard had escaped, look at this, the guard had escaped the death of an earthquake. He had escaped a near suicide. Now he wanted to escape eternal death. So he looks at them and he says, what should I do? Now listen, we're not saved by works. You'll hear me say that a million times. There's nothing we can do that earns salvation, but there is an attitude that we must all have to be saved. And we see in this man that there were three components that he had to have in order to be saved. The first one is, is he recognized that he needed help. He recognized that he was lost. The second thing is, he was aware that Jesus was the way to be found, that Jesus was the Savior. So he recognized, he was aware, and the last thing is he responded. 
When he heard about Jesus Christ, he responded to the gospel. And this is how this man was saved. So they responded. Right after he asked the question, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole household, you'll be saved. So Paul and Silas immediately directed the guard to Jesus Christ. But it didn't stop there. This is a problem with a lot of churches. Hey, just believe and you're done. That's the beginning. That's not the end. So he believed. Then they spoke the word of God to him. They educated him more on the gospels. And it didn't stop there either. Then they baptized him and he, his entire family. So whenever people say you got to believe, that's absolutely correct. That is the launching pad. But that just starts our relationship with God. We're saved when we believe, but salvation leads into a relationship, a deep intimacy with our creator, right? And so we see that. We also see that just because he was saved did not mean his entire household was saved with him. What that means is this, just because I'm a believer and have a relationship with Christ doesn't mean my wife and children are saved by proxy. And that's another thing with Southern Christian culture. Well, my parents were Christians, it's fantastic. What about you? What have you decided to do with your life? What is your relationship with God? We all have to make an individual response. All of us have to be responsible to say, God, I will follow you. That's how we are saved. We also see this. This is very important as well. Once the guard is reconciled to God, it doesn't stop there either. He must also be reconciled to people. These are two men that he probably helped beat and then threw them into jail. He had offended them. He had treated them poorly. So first he's reconciled to God and then he is reconciled to the people that he has offended. All of us are called to do this if possible, right? I know reconciliation is not always possible, but first we're reconciled with God and then we are also reconciled with each other, okay? Took a picture of my house and threw it up here for this last slide, so. <laughs> Hurts my feelings that you guys are laughing at that so hard, man. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. Now, the jailer's excited about that. Man, you guys get to go free. Go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and they threw us in jail. And now they're going to send us away secretly Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters, and then they departed." So the magistrates only intended to keep them, them, them in jail for a day. They thought, we'll beat these guys, we'll throw them in the worst part of the jail for a night, and they'll learn their lesson. They're not going to disrupt Philippi, the city they were in, anymore. Now, Paul kind of pulls a wild card from his sleeve at this point, which I'm kind of confused, like, why wouldn't you pull this before they beat you and threw you in jail? But whatever, right? That was God, I guess, telling him what to do. But right as they're about to let them out, the guard, he says, wait a second. We're Roman citizens, and we have been treated unfairly. We are the ones that the law has been broken against us, and we have been denied our rights. So Paul gets a little sassy here, right? So he says, we're not going to leave the prison until the magistrates who put us in here personally come down here 
and escort us out. Now, here's the, the, the historical side of this. If you were a Roman citizen, which Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens, right? They had dual citizenship. These guys had rights just like any Roman citizen. And one of the rights that every Roman citizen had is if something was unjustly done to you by the Roman government, you could write a letter that would go directly to Caesar's desk. And if everything on there was true, Caesar himself would personally take care of the people that mistreated you. Paul knew his right to do this, and he kind of uses that card here, right? So they knew that they were in the wrong, and Paul and Silas had an ear with Caesar. So the magistrates recognized that they made a mistake. They showed up in person. We are so sorry. We are so sorry. Everyone, our bad. We're the ones that made the mistake. And they said, oh yeah, and can you guys get the heck out of town, right? Because they don't want to get busted. These magistrates, they don't want to come under the gun because of their mistake. So here's what's interesting. It almost looks like in this, in this instance that Paul is being a little rebellious, a little defiant, right? We're like, hey, is that really the Christian way to act? Now, when we study a little bit further, we see that it's not Paul being rebellious. It's not Silas being, you know, a nonconformist or something. That's not what it is. They were trying to protect the reputation of this brand new church in Philippi. They just started a church there, right? It's starting to flourish. People are starting to come. And they were concerned that people would think, wow, the guys that came into town and started the Christian church just got arrested for disrupting the peace. And they wanted everyone to know that is not the case. We are innocent. It was their bad. And we as Christians are good people, right? That's what they were concerned about. Now that brings up something today that we still struggle with. We have a tendency as Christians to really, really bash Christians. Now just let me know, let me, and listen, if you've been hurt by a church, me too. You can buy a copy of our book, right? And it goes into the story about how my wife and I were deeply hurt by the church we got saved in. But listen, we've got to grow up, we've got to forgive people, and we need to protect the reputation of Jesus's wife, the church. So whenever we go around constantly slandering the body of God, that is offensive to God. It's like if you walk up to me and say, Corey, I love you. I cannot stand Alicia. That's my wife, right? I'm not going to like you if you say that, by the way. <laughs> so it's the same thing though. When we go to Jesus, man, Jesus, I love you. I worship you. Your wife can't stand her. That's offensive to Jesus, but that's what we typically do as Christians. So let's protect the reputation of the church. Let's not sweep the bad things we've done under the rug. I get a kick out of people. It's like, oh, all the atrocities of the church. I'm like, Hey, name me a couple, Spanish Inquisition. All right, that was a 1,000 years ago. You got anything else? Well, the Crusades, that was 1,200 years ago. Anything else, right? In the meantime, we started universities and hospitals and orphanages, and we are the most benevolent group of people on planet Earth. But, you know, I know, we've made some mistakes, right? Let's protect the reputation of the church, not constantly try to tear it down. So they were going to leave, right? They said, okay, we'll get out of town. We got other stuff to do anyways. They made up their mind that they were going to leave the, the area of Philippi, but before they did, they're going to stop back at the church in Lydia's house, right? So many believe Luke stayed. We don't know that for a fact. Many believe Luke kind of hung out and helped them, but we don't know that for a fact. But we can assume this. The jailer that just recently got saved, his, and whole, his uh, whole family, they went to the Philippian church. So the book of Philippians, that letter was written, and this jailer would have heard that letter read by Lydia probably. Not only that, 
We can also assume, because many theologians believe this formerly demon-possessed slave girl also went to the church in Philippi. Look at this. So we have this body of believers, a former Roman guard that beat Paul, a former slave girl that was possessed by a Pythian spirit who mocked the, these missionaries, that they became believers and started going to one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. So you have this group of people, right, that came from nothing. They're not second, third, fourth generation Christians. They're the first ones in their city. And they are a healthy, vibrant group. And there's no apostles, right? None of the authors of the Bible were going to hang out in this area, unless Luke did, but we don't have anything to say that he did. But there's no apostles in this church. There's no ordained ministers in this church. There's no professionals. Yet they become one of the most famous churches in the New Testament, one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. So get this, despite their lack of pedigree, despite their lack of expertise and knowledge of the Bible, right? Despite their backgrounds, despite their mistakes, they became responsible, responsible for their own walk with Christ. They became responsible for their city and they became responsible for each other. They didn't let excuses get in the way of what they were supposed to do for the kingdom of God. It's a very encouraging church. So here's the three things we want to talk about before I let you guys leave. And we're going to get a little spiritual, okay? The first one is this. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you must believe in the Holy Spirit. And that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1.13 says, when we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, we love talking about the power of God. We love talking about angels. We love talking about guardian angels. The Bible talks about angels that watch over cities in the book of Revelation. We love talking about that stuff. We're very uncomfortable when we start talking about the demonic. But the Bible is very clear. We don't wage against flesh and blood. We don't wage war against things that we can see. We wage war against darkness, against evil, and against spiritual powers. So if we believe in Jesus Christ and if we believe in the angelic, the Christian must also believe that there's an enemy against us, Satan and demonic forces. One third of heaven, the Bible says, however many that is. So here's the thing. There are demonic forces that will tempt you, oppress you, and possibly, if we are not careful and guarded, possess you. Oh, Corey, there's no such thing as demonic possession anymore. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a story in Miami, Florida, of a man on the side of the highway who had stripped off all of his clothes completely naked, jumped on a homeless man while he was still alive, and proceeded to eat his face while he was still alive. Two police officers showed up. They, un they unloaded two different guns, nine millimeter bullets. They un uh, unloaded their entire clips, both of them, before the, the man finally went down. They started reporting on this on the news, and they said, well, obviously, obviously this guy was hopped up on something. So they do a blood test on the guy's body, nothing, no drugs. And so when people say, do you think people are still demonically possessed? <laughs> Absolutely. Look at our culture. Look at our culture. Satan is well at work in our culture today. Now, does that mean that you need to be afraid of that? No. If, if you are full of the Holy Spirit. If you are not full of the Holy Spirit, you should be very intimidated. You have no shield. You have no guard. You have no protection. And guys, I'm going to get a little legalistic on you. If you have children in this room, you need to be careful with the crap that you let in your house. Jesus even said, by what you take in with your eyes contaminates the entire soul. You need to be careful what you watch. 
You need to be careful what your kids watch. You need to be careful where you go and what you listen to. You need to guard yourself, guard your heart, guard your eyes and guard your ears. That's legalistic. It's Jesus. He talked about it long before we had the internet, long before you could have access to anything to look at. Jesus said, guard, because what goes in through your eyes contaminates everything. Are we to be afraid of the demonic? No. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we are to be confident that God has given us authority over demonic influence. Now listen, if you call me to come to your house and pray for your home, I'll do it. But let me just let you in on something. I don't think Satan cares about the bricks that your house is made up of. He cares to destroy you. So I don't personally believe in haunted houses. I believe in haunted people. And so if I come to your house, if you invite me to do that, I'm going to pray for you guys. And I'm going to pray that you take dominion and authority over your home, that you pray for God to put a hedge around it, that you pick up the shield of faith, and that you're guarded from evil. But here's the thing, guys. If you're a man in this room, and if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't need me to come to your house. You have authority to do that. If you're a woman in this room and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can lay hands on your children and pray that God protects them. You don't need a pastor to do it. God has given you the same Holy Spirit that he's given me. And we need to step up and we need to own that and be confident that God has equipped us if all hell comes against us that we can stand firm as long as Jesus Christ is in our heart, right? That's old Pentecostal Corey coming out a little bit there, all right? We, <laughs> we also need to know that there is a difference between contentment and happiness. While in prison, two spirit-filled men in the darkest part of the darkest night, in the worst situation you can be in, Paul and Silas worshiped and they prayed. And what we learn from this chapter is that happiness as the world teaches it is dramatically different than contentment that God gives. Let me explain. All throughout our culture, people say, be happy. God wants you to be happy. I'm like, I've never read that scripture. But anyways, God just wants me to be happy. That's, that's not in there. And so we constantly hear happiness, happiness, happiness. I don't want you guys to be happy. I want you to be filled with joy and contentment. Happiness is contingent on your circumstances. So if you find happiness in a brand new car, you can wreck that car. If you find happiness in a trophy wife, God forbid she can get cancer. If you find happiness in a home, God forbid it can burn down. If you find happiness in money, well, that's a whole nother lesson. That is the root of all evil, right? So whenever our happiness is based on circumstances, it's built on a very faulty foundation. It can fall apart. But if we have the contentment that God gives us, contentment is not based on circumstances. Contentment is you can take everything I have, even God forbid my family, even if you were to take my head, you cannot take my relationship with God. That is something you cannot rob from me. Therefore, I am content regardless of what I have or what I don't have. That's why, and you shouldn't do this, but if you ever go back and watch the videos of the men who are videotaped as they're being beheaded, by radical Muslims on the beaches in Lebanon. If you go back and watch those, those men are not like fighting. They're not in fear. Their faces are placid because they're full of the Holy Spirit and they're dying for what they believed in. In essence, they say, you can take my head, but you can't take my heart, right? You can't take my relationship with God. No matter, again, what comes against us, what is taken from us, what we have or don't have. If we have a relationship with Christ, we have joy and we have something much greater than happiness. We have contentment and fulfillment, okay? 
That brings us to the Philippian church. This is called the epistle of joy. The word joy is spoken about more in the book of Philippians than anywhere else in the entire Bible. This is that ragtag group of people. One, formerly possessed by a Pythian spirit. They're known as the church of joy. This diverse group of people with not only no Christian background, they were in a city that was hostile towards Christianity. They were in a culture that was not Christian. We talked about last week, there weren't even 10 good God-fearing men in the entire city before Paul and Silas got there. That's where these people had joy. This is where they had a relationship with God. Now, this is fascinating. I hope this speaks to some of you. The circumstances of their city, the circumstances of their government, the circumstances of the culture around them in the present. Not only that, their present circumstances, nor the mistakes of their past, their abuses, the things that had been done to them and the things that they had done, those things were not excuses for them to take responsibility for their walk with God. People all the time say, well, Corey, you don't know what's happened to me. That's why I don't pray. That's why I don't go to church. Hey, I hate to be insensitive. All of us have scars. All of us have been beaten down. All of us have been abused on some level. All of us have been hurt in this life. When Jesus said, in this life, there will be troubles, he meant in this life, there will be troubles. All of you will go through the ringer, I guarantee you. And if you haven't yet, give it time, you will. I hate hearing excuses. Listen, when we are baptized, it says in Colossians, we are brought back to life. We are not the same creation we were previously. God has given us all a second chance. And I don't care what the circumstances of culture is. I don't care what the circumstances of your past and the mistakes you've made. God has given us a clean slate and he has given us a power greater than any government, any culture, any dictator, whatever can come against him. It says in the Old Testament that the government was over Jesus's shoulder. He carries that crap on his shoulder. When people say, well, what about the government? Man, Jesus just flings that over his shoulder and he carries that. You don't need to be afraid of anybody or anything. Take responsibility for your relationship with God. Take responsibility for your city. There's so much poverty. Do something about it. We put tens of millions of dollars into church buildings. Let's put it into the poverty problem. Let's put it into the homeless problem. Let's put it into the housing problem. Let's do something about it. When are we gonna stop making excuses for the depravity around us and start engaging it and doing something about it? The church in Philippi, oh gosh, we're outnumbered. Who cares if we're outnumbered? We have the creator God on our side. And not only that, we need to take responsibility for each other. Well, Corey, I haven't been a good husband because of this. Grow up. God has filled you with his Holy Spirit. You can be the man that you need to be. You can be the mom and the mother that you need to be. You can be the woman that you need to be. You can be the employee or the business owner you need to be. And we're called to take care of each other. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about a brother that killed his brother, right? The first murder that we have in the Bible. God shows up and he asks one of the brothers, hey, I haven't seen your brother around, where is he? And there's this rhetorical question that is asked. He says, what am I, my brother's keeper? And essentially the answer from God is, yes, yes you are. You are to look out for your brother. You are to look out for your sister. If you see them struggling, you're to help carry their weight. 
whether that be spiritual weight or financial weight or whatever the case may be, that if we see that there is a mother that doesn't have a man in her life and is raising three or four kids, that some of us men step up to the plate and say, let me be the man in the life, in their life. Let me step up. Let me share this burden. Let me see if I can help make up that deficit. We need to get over our excuses for the church not being what it's supposed to be. And if we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we have everything we need to be Jesus Christ on earth right now. We have everything we need. We are fully equipped by God to do whatever we need to do. We need to stop saying, well, but you don't know. You're right, I don't know. And you don't know everything that's happened to me either. And you don't know everything that's happened to this woman over here or to this child over here. But I know by the power and grace of God, we are overcomers. I know that we can move forward. So three things before we take communion. The first one is, and if you take communion today, if you're a Christian here, this is what I want to encourage you to do. Ask for Christ to forgive you of your sins before you take communion. You, you have to. That's biblical. Before you do that, uh, I'm sorry, or after you do that, come back to your seat. And if you're taking communion, in a voice that you can hear, an audible voice, you need to ask God to fill you up with his Holy Spirit. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. All hell waits out there. And you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. If we're full of the Holy Spirit... I'm not, I'm not afraid of all hell. I can overcome all hell with Christ with me. Pray for God to fill you up with his Holy Spirit. Be confident. Pray over your family. Pray over yourself. Pray over your friends and your neighbors. Pray over your home. Pray over your business. Pray over your kids' schools. About this whole responsibility thing, guys, I'm so sick of hearing parents say, man, we need to get prayer back in schools. You need to get prayer back in your home. It's not, my, it's not my kid's teacher's job to teach them theology. It's my job to teach my kids theology. My teacher's job is to teach them math and science and writing. That's their teacher's job. When it comes to the home, there's a bunch of parents who have not taken the responsibility for their children. And we start pointing at everyone else. Oh, it's TV's fault that this has happened. No, 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 no. We are the ones commissioned to raise our kids. We are the ones that are the filters. We are the ones that are the gatekeepers for what gets to our children. We have dropped the ball. We, we can look at everything else and put it on them, but we are the ones. It's not the school's fault that my kids don't pray. It's my fault if my kids don't pray. We need to know the difference between contentment and happiness. Get out of the habit of praying for God to make you happy. Pray for God to make you content. Pray for God to give you joy. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, actually, right? That if we have that, one of the, 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 the produces, one of the productions of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The last thing is, do not let the culture, do not let the system of the world around you, do not let the mistakes you've made or the mistakes that have been made to you affect how you go out and take responsibility for your walk with God, your city, your community, and for the people closest to you. Do not use excuses. God is bigger than those things. Know that, own that, believe that. Okay? Would you guys bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, um, there are people up here on the right and left if you need prayer for anything. The Bible says we're any two or more gathered in my name that I'm right in the middle of them. So if you need someone to join you in prayer, if you're struggling with something, please, 
please let one of these men or women pray for you. If you're in here and you want to take communion, we just ask that you ask God to forgive you of your sins. You're welcome to take the bread and the juice that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ that died for us. He didn't just die for us, though, as your heads are bowed, eyes are closed. He also rose again, and it says that he poured out his Holy Spirit on all those that would believe. Now, that's big. So when you take communion today, it's not just that Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you, and he has equipped his followers with the power of the Holy Spirit. You have that. That even if Satan himself comes up against you, that if the Holy Spirit is in us, we can say in the name of Jesus Christ, go. And he has to go. If you are in here and you are not a Christian, I only ask that you keep an open mind. I ask that you keep digging, keep looking, keep reading, keep studying, keep coming back and see if you don't start to get answers. Lord Jesus, God, I pray blessings. I pray protection over everyone in this room. God, I want to pray for every woman in this room. I want to pray, God, that you protect them, Lord, that you keep them safe. I want to pray for the mothers in this room, that you give them wisdom, God. Lord, that they can lead their children well, that they can be the wife that they need to be, the mom that they need to be. God, I pray for every man in this room, that you make them the men that they need to be, the leaders that they need to be. Lord, I pray, God, that the men in this room will pray, that they will lead their family in prayer, that they will be an example to their, their spouse, to, an example to their children of what you want out of us, God. I pray, Lord, for reconciliation for people who may not get along. I pray, God, that we can repent and that we can, we can be humble. I pray, God, that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit as we go back out into a crazy world, Lord, that we are equipped, Lord, to engage people who are hurting, to pray and to trust that you're with us, God. I pray for every non-believer in this room, God, that you just touch their heart. Start to show them, Lord, the answers. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We're humbled by you, God. Be with us until we meet again, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.